I'm Bob Lapine, one of the speakers at the 2022 Basics Conference for Pastors held at Parkside Church was Tony Morita. Tony is the pastor for Preaching and Vision at Imago Day Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's the dean of Grimke Seminary and is also the director of theological training for the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. He's written a number of Bible commentaries in the Christ-Centered Expositor series, along with other books. He's a busy man, and we had a lot to talk about when we sat down for a short conversation. Tony, welcome. Thank you. I want to just go through everything you're involved with, <laughs> which could take the whole time that we're in this, but I want I want listeners to get a sense of all the different things you're doing. Primarily, you're a local church pastor. Yeah. You planted Imago uh-huh. Day. Uh-huh. About 10 years ago. And, and tell everybody where that is. Uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And why there and why plant a church? Just how did that even come up? Yeah, so I wanted to plant a church for a long time and did pretty much everything but that. Um, The Lord opened some other doors for me before we planted and uh, gave us some really important ministry experience and some really great memories. Um, And then um, I think I was about 33, and I just was – had a desire to start from, you know, the ground up and had had that burden for some time. Uh, And so we started looking at cities – uh, we have five adopted children that were newly adopted, and so that put some constraints we felt like on where we could go. Felt like Manhattan or um, L.A. or somewhere like that seemed to be a little impractical given our family size mm-hmm. and the challenges that we have as a family. And so we're looking at mid-sized cities, and uh, Raleigh uh, was at the top one because of its size, but two because it has a lot of young families, a lot of college students. And we felt like that would be a, a demographic we could really reach well. And so now we have a, a church that's uh, quite sizable, and 80% of our church is under the age of 40. Wow. Um, and we have a ton of kids, uh, a lot of college students, very transient area. Um, the average member of our church is there for about three years. So um, we, we like all of those dynamics uh, mm. of, of being uh, in the triangle. Oh, wait, you like the they're here for three years and gone? <laughs> you like that dynamic? I, I like the fact that uh, we're able to make an impact on them and hopefully give them a vision of a, of a healthy church that will stay with them wherever they go. So some of them are coming in and out because of school. Some of them are coming in and out because the work has taken them there. We have a lot of internationals, a lot of transplants. It's kind of a running joke, like nobody's from Raleigh that's in our church. Uh, and so it, it, it is kind of a college feel in that sense um, that we don't have a lot of long-time folks there. Now, there are some exceptions to that, and we're, gr- we're grateful. grateful. <laughs> we often tell people, please stay. We want some of you to stay. Um, but, but we do like the fact that we, our church has a real multiplying impact uh, around the world because of the nature of, of, of it. Uh, of it. Uh, and, and that is um, you know, something that um, encourages us as we think about the various ministry opportunities that are out there, the, the ability to, to really impact the, the world as people come in and through our church is, is pretty special. I see people at conferences and, and even conferences like Basics that have been in our church and, and that has really uh, impacted their view of the church and those kinds of things. And so we feel privileged to be in that position. Church planting is obviously part of your DNA. Mm-hmm. You're involved with Acts 29, which mm-hmm. is a church planting organization, yeah. both domestically and internationally. Should a planter, somebody who who feels that burden and who has 
the affirmation that, yeah, this is what you, you should be doing. Do you look around and say, um, I mean, you, you looked for a mid-sized city that would be right for your family. Do you look and say, where is there, um, what, what are the market dynamics that we, we need to go here because there are not enough churches or they need this kind of church? Or mm-hmm. do you just go plant a gospel church mm-hmm. because another gospel church is always going to be good wherever you go? Yeah, I think there are probably about 10 different uh, dynamics in play when it comes to the early phases of church planting. I always say like the early phases, you can start a church in so many different ways and and in so many different places. Then you've got a church, and then we're we're pastoring them the same way. (laughs) That startup phase, though, is just kind of wild, and it's the Wild West, you know. Um, So for me, I didn't mention, but, like, I was also offered a job to teach at Southeastern Seminary, Mm -hmm. which was important because we were going to be a bivocational church planting team. We had three other pastors that were also going to be working uh, in in the corporate world. Uh, And so that, that model was very important, that we all have jobs and that they're decent jobs, but that our jobs allow us the freedom to, to pastor. And so our church got started in, in that regard. Others, yeah, I think they, they pick a city. They, um, they um, sometimes hive off of a church and go plant another church. Sometimes it's the youth minister who knows a bunch of people in the town and, and people have grown up uh, you knowing him and he takes a group across town to plant a church. Sometimes guys want to plant in college towns, and uh, so they look at Austin or, or wherever it might be. Um, so I think there are various, uh, you know, motivations and uh, uh, reasons why guys go in certain places. The thing that we emphasize to our church planters is that um, team is more important than location. Um, that I, I think location matters, as I've just indicated, like as we were processing. But there's probably 10 other cities that would meet the similar criteria, right? Um, but we had a, a team and we had some who were already in that area that, that really uh, made, it, made it a wonderful, you know, um, a wonderful dream come to a reality. Um, and so I think any place can really get old after a while. Um, but when you've got the right team you're working with, uh, I think that's what gives sustainability to, to a church plan in, in, a, in a major way. Uh, we helped plant a church almost 15 years ago now in Little Rock. And I remember we we had to use somebody else's facility one week for a meeting, you know, in the early days startups. And somebody from this church, one of their, their uh, support staff, looked at us and said, you're planting a church do we really need another church in Little Rock? And it, it kind of set me back for a minute going, okay, are, are we – is it possible to oversaturate a market with church plants, or should we just be planting as many of these as we can and just let God go? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I think in the case of, of Raleigh-Durham, yeah, we've got a lot of churches um, but we've got so many new people. And one thing that missiologists have pointed out through the years is that newer people tend to go to newer churches because everybody's a transplant. And so when you're in those kinds of situations, to go in a, a church that's been there for 100 years that have had people that are for years, sometimes it's hard to crack that culture. And then we also know that um, we have, uh, unfortunately, just a, a decline in gospel-centered churches. And so while an area may uh, ha- have a lot of churches and may even on in, as a doctrinal statement affirm the gospel, 
gospel in reality. There's just not a lot of gospel preaching and gospel discipleship that's going on. And so uh, in certain places, one may be surprised that, yeah, we need we need churches there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, we, we can't simply judge it by the number of churches that are in an area. Not every church is, is doing good stuff, you know. <laughs> and, and I don't want to presume that everybody listening understands. I mean, we, we toss around a phrase like gospel-centered church, and that sounds Everybody nods their heads like, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. When you talk about a gospel-centered church, Mm -hmm. how is that different than a generic evangelical church? Well, um, I have a friend named Femi who is a pastor in Lagos, Nigeria, a church planter. And we were at a conference together, and he he was differentiating between a gospel-centered church and other kinds of churches, that uh, you have kind of gospel-denying churches, which which nobody would probably say that they are, but there are some that are – of a particular ilk that uh, there is no gospel. There's there's gospel minimizing churches that um, you have a lot of self-help. You have a lot of biblical principles, perhaps, that are being taught on maybe stewardship or things like that, but you don't hear the gospel a whole lot. Um, you have you have gospel proclaiming churches, but they they tend to view the gospel as that which gets you into the kingdom, and then after that, there's a lot of kind of moralistic principles that are given to believers. Um, but a gospel-centered church is is saying that uh, we're preaching the gospel for evangelism, but also for edification yeah. and trying to grow disciples by a deeper understanding of the gospel, a deeper application of the gospel, that we never grow beyond it. You know, it, it's Paul in, in Colossians 2 saying, just as you received Christ, so walk in him. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't go anywhere else. We just continue by faith. You know, we, we continue adoring Christ as we walk through the Christian life. And so the gospel really is the the, the, the main thing in the church, uh, whether it's preaching or discipleship or counseling, uh, small group life. Everything is to be saturated by the good news that's in, in Christ Jesus. Um, and so... Um, I think I think we need we need millions of these churches around the globe. I read somewhere, and I've tried to find this in the original uh, sources and can't. But somebody said that Martin Luther said, "Every week I preach the gospel because every week I forget it." Mm-hmm. We are gospel forgetful people, all yeah. of us, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think just take the book of Galatians. Well, Paul's like, you, you started off by faith. Now, what what are you guys doing? Right. <laughs> um, you, you've abandoned the good news. Or in Colossians, it's they think Jesus isn't enough. It's uh, Jesus plus something else. And Paul's trying to tell them, no, he, he is fully sufficient. Um, and so there's always a temptation to say, don't we need something else or something more? Or isn't, uh, isn't there something deeper? Or... Um, how do we get practical, you know? And the answer is like we, we get practical, but we, we stay tied to our union with Christ. We always tie these exhortations with the indicatives, as we say, the promises of the gospel that empower uh, our obedience. Uh, and so uh, it's great to, to see a resurgence of, of this this interest that, as you, you indicate, has, has been there for years in church history. Mm-hmm. Um, but we always need a fresh application of it in our generation. And we always need, as uh, you know, several have pointed out, to, to be able to detect the idols of our generation and try to apply the gospel uh, to these these false hopes um, that that people latch onto today. Um, and so that's the work of of planting new churches. That's the work of, as we call it, contextualization of knowing a context and trying to apply the gospel, bring it to bear. Because the things that my city struggles with is, are, are not necessarily going to be the things that. Um, uh, 
places in, in Africa, for example, would struggle with, where there, my friend Femi would say, it's not a problem of trying to, uh, you know, make people religious or interested in spiritual things. They already are. It's an issue there of theological clarity, mm-hmm. uh, of of really making sure they understand what they believe. And it's not Jesus plus animism or Jesus plus something else. Where we have now the 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 rise of secularism, and just the the happy pagans who just don't seem to be interested uh, at all, and and, they, and don't see their need for you know a, a savior. So we we've got. Uh, challenges in every context, and it's the same gospel, but we're trying to do good application of it, right? It seems like here in the United States, we've been through a a season where there has been an accelerated desire to plant gospel-centered churches. Is that plateauing, or is that continuing to accelerate? Yeah. Well, I can't speak for all the church planning networks, and we've got a, a number of great ones out there, but we've talked a lot within Acts 29 about um, there was uh, an initial spike of church planters, and in many cases, uh, it, it seems that the uh, the well is dried up a little bit with with kind of lead church planters. And some have have surmised that the reason for that is a lot of the the church planters in the early days, say of Acts twenty nine, had been in ministry for a season already. They were they had been youth ministers, college ministers, and now you and they had a lot of that experience really helped them in terms of. of planting a church because you you kind of got to do everything as a church planter right <laughs> um, I always laugh now when people get my mic on for me at, when I preach somewhere because I've never done that in our church plan <laughs> um, but um, guys now that come maybe through seminary or through a residency and they're say 24 25 want to go plant a church but they have no experience really doing church ministry and so I, I'm trying you know in, in my in my church and with those I interact with try and encourage guys get as much church ministry experience as you can first. I was 34 when I planted, and I was glad I wasn't 24 with no experience. And so um, I I think um, we... we, um, we're seeing a lack uh, in some cases of, of of interest in church planting. Um, I think we're we're seeing some guys that are probably going out too soon, though, and I think that's what's created a bit of that plateau, which is why we in Acts 29 really want to do assessment well. And so sometimes that might mean we're telling a guy, hey, I think you should wait two or three years. We we think you've got the the character and the gifts. But just uh, you know, feeling some criticism from <laughs> um, church members and, mm-hmm. and dealing with some of the things you can't really teach are so important when you get out to plant a church because you're doing so many things initially, and you can really burn yourself out if you don't have some sense of what this is like doing you know church ministry. So we've we've talked about you as a pastor and involvement with church planting through Acts 29. You're also – you mentioned Southeastern as a, an opportunity. You didn't go there, but you are a, a part of a seminary, Grimke Seminary. So tell everybody about Grimke. Yeah. So I did teach at Southeastern for about six years and a wonderful experience. Prior to that, I taught at New Orleans Baptist Seminary uh, for uh, a few years, another great experience. Um, yeah, I stepped away uh, when our church began to grow and I couldn't maintain both both jobs. And um, and so I didn't teach at all for a couple of years. And then some guys within 829 wanted to start uh, uh, 
kind of a, you might call it a hybrid model or an intensive-based model of seminary, uh, which means this is not a residential school, but it's not entirely online either. Um, it's a school where, where guys uh, do a lot of in-context studying, meaning that they, they stay at their church. We want them to stay at their church. They're mentored by their pastor. If they are the pastor, we provide a coach for that mentoring. And then they come into Richmond, Virginia twice a semester uh, for the intensives. Um, and this has really served um, a particular demographic, I think, who feel like uh, they can't relocate to go to seminary. They they can't afford uh, or, or it's going to really challenge them to afford traditional seminary. Um, and some of them feel like the degree programs are so long, it's it's kind of impossible for them, especially, I don't know, maybe 50% of our guys are pastors. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of them could probably teach the classes. They're, they're, they're very intelligent. Most of our discussions feel more like doctoral uh, discussions because they've had so much rich experience. They just don't have a formal degree. And so most of them think the only option for them is online uh, education, which is better than nothing. It's, it's helpful. And we're going to be doing some of that ourselves. But the intensive base gives them a little bit of that life on life, and we offer two different masters. And so you can, you can be one and done, uh, like college basketball stars, and, and, and be finished. <laughs> or you could do the second masters, and together they add up to a kind of a traditional MDiv degree. So it gives them an easy on and off ramp. It gives them some some life on life engagement. Um, it's pretty rigorous. I mean, we're reading the same text as most seminaries, and they're doing a good bit of writing and that kind of thing, critical thinking. Um, but it's it's been enjoyable, and we've been just shocked at the interest. Uh, we have students from California. We have a student from Alaska right now. Mm. Uh, they they really like the model. Next week, I'm going to Turkey, and I'm meeting with one of our um, X29 guys there who wants to kind of emulate our model in, in Turkey because this. This intensive-based program seems to, to really uh, be doing well because the, the when they come for the intensives, it's it's not just education. It's edification. you got a bunch of guys who are in the trenches, and our school right now is solely devoted to pastors. So we've got kind of the old-school Spurgeon College feel where everybody's interested in all things church because yeah. they're doing it all the time. And it's not just something that they might do one day or whatever. And so I can write something on the whiteboard and we talk for an hour just about a, you know an idea. Um, and so that coming together for a week is kind of like coming to basics. It's being together with a group of pastors and uh, encouraging one another, building friendships. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's pretty special what's happening. Tell everybody about who the seminary is named after. Yeah, Francis J. Grimke was a, a longtime pastor in, in Washington, D.C. He's got a very interesting uh, history. Uh, comes out of slavery. He's got uh, some sisters that are very well known for uh, their work. And we just wanted to name it after uh, a, a pastor that was not very well known, but was tremendously faithful and should be well known. Mm-hmm. Studied under the great Charles Hodge uh, and uh, was just uh, a really uh, great expositor, was a, was a bold preacher and, and a faithful pastor. And that's what we're trying to um, send out, you know, and, and, and strengthen is is the faithful pastor in the local church. Now, you just kind of breeze past the fact that you're married. You have five adopted kids. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me that story. Yeah. Yeah, I got one wife, got five <laughs> good, kids. That's good. <laughs> uh, we've been married, gosh, going on 19 years now. Um, we met at youth camp. I was a camp pastor. She was a camp director. 
And so we've, we've only known each other in the context of ministry, and we've just had a wonderful, you know, uh, life so far to, of, of family and, and ministry. About 13 years ago, we went to Ukraine. We were approved to adopt uh, two children, got over there, found a biological sibling group of four, uh, ages four, six, seven, and nine, and uh, we stayed in the country 40 days, uh, edited all of our paperwork, and eventually went to court, brought those four kids home. Um, they spoke no English. They had uh, just uh, a lot of a lot of difficulties in their past, and uh, it's been it's been a very hard, challenging uh, ordeal. But we would do it all over again. It's been a tremendous blessing. About a year later, we adopted uh, a little boy from Ethiopia, um, Joshua, and so now all of our kids are ages 17 to 22. Um, and now you know how to pray for me. <laughs> <laughs> I I um. Remember talking to somebody. I I was a part for years of a ministry called Family Life. We were very um, active in promoting adoption, and I remember somebody pulling me aside at some point and saying, "You need to be well. Well, you talk about the glory and the gospel richness of adoption. You need to be warning parents. You're strapping on something that comes oh, yeah. with a lot of challenge." Oh yeah, yeah. I say orphan care is warfare. Yeah. Um, in in whatever way you you go about doing it, whether you're interested in foster care or adoption, or you just want to provide care for uh, kids in orphanages, um, it, it is. And adoption is is certainly the hardest thing we've ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, those young years you never get back uh, in a child, and they're so formative. And um, and and every child has their uh, his or her own story, and. Um, things that are going to uh, be challenges for them for the rest of their lives. And we've had a lot of highs and lows in adoption, and our church is filled with parents who, who've adopted children, and it's a beautiful sight, but we all also share, we can identify with each other's struggles because a lot of them are very similar. Um, and not everybody has a really challenging times. Some, there are exceptions to that. But, yeah, we definitely want to help people count the cost, if you will, before they, they say yes to adoption and that they don't see this as some romantic venture with soft music playing in the background. <laughs> I always say you need to play gladiator music when you think about this. And the kids coming and saying thank you for rescuing us and for all of the sacrifices you've made for us. That that just doesn't happen, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I've always taken comfort in uh Luke 14, when Jesus says, if you're going to have a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, because they cannot repay you. And then he says, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Mm-hmm. And that he just fuels, uh, you know, something as simple as hospitality with eternal significance. And so for me, it's like, why, why do we adopt kids? Well, first, I mean, we, we do want to care for kids. They're made in the image of God. They're worthy of love and dignity. And no kid needs to grow up in an orphanage. Every kid deserves a family. But we're also doing this to the glory of Jesus, and we recognize that everything we do in this life, as simple as inviting people over for Thanksgiving dinner or, or having uh, adopted kids around the f- uh, table, is in view of the resurrection mm-hmm. that is to come. In other words, it's worth it. All the trials and all the challenges, everything that we do in Jesus' name will one day show itself to be worth it. Yeah. You came of age in ministry during the time that we look back on as the movement of the young, reformed, restless. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's 20-plus years that that's been a part of the culture. And everybody's kind of pulling back and going, okay, what what should we make of that movement? Is it still alive and active? Uh, How do we critique it? What are your thoughts on that? 
Great question. I'm not sure I can answer that very well. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. <laughs> um, but I was at the very first T4G, and I didn't go again until the last one. Huh. Um, but I remember the first year it was exciting because we had the, a lot of names, uh, figures that had never really shared the, the stage before and, and was doing this sort of thing. And so we're like, huh, um, that, that's wonderful. Uh, it was very encouraging and life-giving. Uh, I, I, I suppose, I mean, I, I think Colin Hansen and some others would be a better person to answer this. But just given my anecdotal experience, I, I think it is still alive and well. Um, I think some some people have done some some crazy things uh, through the years, right? Um, but I think in terms of just if we just focused on reform soteriology, uh, that is very much alive and well. Um, and I think with with like our seminary, with Acts twenty nine, with other church planting organizations that are affirming just a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation. However, they tease out the nuances of that right. and how they emphasize grace and the gospel-centered movement. All of those, to me, are indicators that, yeah, um, that's, that's, very much, um, that's very much alive. I think that the challenge has been to work our gospel doctrine into healthy relationships and, and keep the partnerships uh, alive and not splinter off into various groups which uh, Christians are just so prone to do. I was going to say, that's been a challenge throughout church history, hasn't it? It sure has. Um, What about what we're experiencing in in the broader evangelical world today? It seems like anytime you go online, some prominent new person is deconstructing their faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, The evangelicalism that they grew up in, their they're saying, I went there, it was empty, there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's happening at a, an alarming enough rate that you start to go, wait, what What do we need? How do we process that? Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one too. I, I wonder how, how much of this is just more visible now because of social media and things like that. Um, sur- surely people have been doing that throughout the years. Um, you know, it's the adage, you, what you win them with, you, you keep them with. I wonder how many people have really experienced uh, in-depth, gospel-centered, Christ-centered teaching week in and week out and had rich biblical community. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like um, I I wonder what kind of experiences a lot of those have had. And we should add to that healthy leadership that they've experienced because it seems like that, that seems to be the thing that uh, is receiving a lot of the, the critique these days, some bad experience. And that's just awful. You know, we, we grieve with people who have those experiences. Um, but I think if you show me someone who's generally regenerate in that they're in a church that they're, they're hearing the gospel regularly, there's passion, there's joy, there's humility in leaders and they experience community. Um, it's gotta be a small percentage yeah, that, that's that doing that sort of thing, right? Yeah. I, I'm talking to parents all the time who are heartbroken at the kids who were active in youth group mm-hmm. and in their 20s are are pushing the borders. Um, if it's not a full deconstruction, it's it, it, certainly the pressure around issues related to gender and sexuality mm-hmm. Um are causing a lot of people in their 20s to go, I, I've got to broaden my understanding of, of mm-hmm. biblical Christianity. Yep, that's where we're at. I mean, that that is, that's where the real pressure is right now. And I think if we don't have robust discipleship of our high school students um, and even younger kids in, in these areas, uh, 
it's going to be difficult to, to see them uh, continue in a, a biblical vision of, of Christianity. Um, and I think it's, it's uh, you know, the church has to really step up in these areas, and we have to stop, you know, treating kids and, and high schoolers like, like they can't think well and they can't right. think deeply. If they can do chemistry, they can do theology, and we just really need to. And we also need to incorporate them into the life of the church and not keep them segmented out into different groups. I remember, I think it was Alistair said several years ago, when some walk away from the church in college, they actually never walked away from the church. They were never part of it. They were part of a group, but not part of the church. And so I think it's important that we just make sure that that uh, our young folks feel connected to the whole body of Christ and, and that they feel open to, to share their questions and they can work through these things and not keep it to themselves and that, that sort of thing. But we've, we've definitely got to, to raise the level of discipleship in these areas. So how are you doing that at Imago Day? So we, we – we want all the kids in the church, basically, uh, big church. Uh, that's, in the service. That's four, just, Everybody's in the worship Four service. and under are in child care, and we have a ton of them. Um, mm. But then, And some of them actually do come into the service. But I know this is not a popular opinion, but I, I prefer to have them there, at least watching their parents worship or other adults worship. Um, and I love the fact that these kids know me. They know my name. That's the joy of my Sunday. Pastor Tony, Pastor Tony, showing me their notes, the pictures they've drawn, all these different things. Um, and in the pastoral prayer time, I always pray for our kids. And, in fact, one Sunday it was, a, it was a great encouragement. One of the kids said to his mom, Pastor Tony's first prayer is really long, but he always prays for me. You know, And I think uh, I know they're not going to grab everything on my sermon, probably not much of anything. Um, but I think just the, the, the liturgy of doing the same thing weekly, of being present with the body and knowing pastors and those kinds of things, I think that's very, very important. And we still have things tailored for the kids, and we do stuff on Sunday night that's just kid-focused and, and uh, youth-focused. and that, We go to youth camp and those things. But for me, like just bringing them in as much as possible um, to, to the life of the body and help allowing them to be present in their, their parents' small groups, um, you know, is also something that can be really meaningful to the kids that they, they feel like they're part of a Mago Day church first and the youth group second mm-hmm. rather than kind of vice versa. We, we kind of run through everything you're involved with, and then it occurred to me, oh, you've written – how many commentaries now? I was gonna, I was gonna do the math, and I thought I can't count that high. It's pretty amazing, man. I, uh, I can't believe I even can read a book. Honestly, I was in special reading growing up, and seriously, oh, seriously, yeah, yeah. I failed the reading part of the ACT. Um, I had a comprehension problem. The Lord overcame all of that, and uh, it's, 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 it's an amazing, it's an amazing testimony of God's grace in my life. I think I have nine commentaries, and then a handful of other books. And and the commentaries, are these typically, you're doing a, a teaching series at church, and mm-hmm. the commentary just comes out of that? Yeah, most of my books flow out of my, my expositions, but I don't just preach them and then publish them. There's a good bit of editing that needs to happen afterward to to make sure that the books are written for the reader, where my sermons are right for the listener. Right. Yeah. And they're, they're part of a series of commentaries. Mm-hmm. Talk about that series. Yeah, the series is called Christ-Centered Exposition. If the listeners are familiar with, with John Stott's uh, the, the Bible Speaks Today series or Kent Hughes's uh, Preach the Word series, they would be similar to those. 
uh, we're trying to show Christ in all the scriptures, and so with all the volumes, we're trying to, to bring that to light. I'm one of the three editors with uh, David Platt and Danny Aiken, mm-hmm. and we each can have contributed, I don't know, seven, eight, nine volumes, and then we have other guys who are, are uh, finishing the, the rest of the volumes. And I don't know where we're at, but probably somewhere around 75% finished uh, with the series. We started about 10 years ago. So I'm finished with all the ones I'm supposed to write, so I'm just waiting on these other guys. <laughs> to catch up with. <laughs> uh, to catch up. But, yeah, it, they seem to be helpful. Uh, we received some good feedback, and I know a lot of people use them just for their own devotional times, and others are using them for sermon prep and teaching prep. I, I think you're familiar with um – the work that Trevin Wax has done recently on multidimensional leadership and, and looking in different directions. If you're talking to a group of pastors about the blind spots hmm. that they need to be alert to, um, what do you warn them about? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, and I have Trevin's book, but I haven't read it. Okay. So um, <laughs> now you're, you're really telling me I need to read it. Yeah, it's, um, good. It's, it's good. I think one, just admitting that we have blind spots is a good place to, to begin. Um, I think it's difficult for us to, to see them uh, uh, at certain times, which is why they're called blind spots, and we need others to point them out to us. And so I think uh, the need to have people speaking into our lives, especially people from different contexts, is, is very helpful. Um, I think having a mentor that's younger than you and a mentor that's older than you is very helpful. Um, and you may not call them mentors per se, but you've got someone that's that's younger that knows a bit of the culture uh, and sees a bit of the culture differently, that can really help a pastor, um, you know, who may be stuck in a rut of of doing the same thing over and over and over again. And then someone who's older as well to to speak in. So I think just having relationships um, is is very important. Um, I think pastors uh, can really get into a, a rhythm of doing church without recognizing a lot of the change in their community. And before long, in some places, they're reaching people who are commuters, if you will, and not reaching their immediate demographic. And because the the wheels keep rolling and church keeps going on, I, I think we, we always have to lead as uh, not just a shepherd, but as a missiologist. Mm-hmm. We've got to always be, there's that tension of being, you know, about pastoral care and about mission. And I think uh, the blind spot often comes within the missional component. Um, pastors should know their, their folks well enough to provide good care. But I, I think it's, it's that question that we're always looking at at Imago Day. It's like, have we considered all the new developments that are coming up around us and all of the um, n- new uh, types of people that are moving into our community and the, the kind of unchurched people that are uh, kind of trickling their way into the church? Are we speaking to them well? Um, are we providing good, clear communication to them? Are we making sure they're getting connected to the right people, that kind of thing? There just has to be constant evaluation mm-hmm. uh, if we're going to be effective in, in reaching our, our, our neighborhoods. And I'm getting ready to to do a series on evangelism, and I, I think – in our context, we've become pretty lethargic in that area. Mm-hmm. I think we've been intimidated. We don't want to speak out too much. I mean, the last two years have had kind of a chilling effect on anybody wanting to talk too much. You, you say, um, I'm a Christian, and people draw all kinds of conclusions about what that means culturally, socially, politically. Yep. Um, 
what what do you suggest to churches to keep the mission, the evangelistic mission of the church in front of your people? How do we do it corporately? How do we how do we inspire it individually? Yeah, so uh, I think for us, the thing we've emphasized the most and what we've done best is hospitality. I think that still works. I think it's worked uh, from the very beginning. You know, there's a book called uh, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel mm-hmm. by Robert Karras, and he says that uh, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. And it's fascinating just how often Jesus is doing ministry around the table. And I think that if you can do hospitality well, you can do both kind of mercy ministry and welcoming and caring for people who are in need, but also evangelism. Uh, and, and lives can be changed simply by saying, hey, will you come over for a barbecue on, on a Thursday? And I think it's it's that kind of ministry where it's it's not kind of cold call evangelism and it's not crusade evangelism, which is not bad, but it is getting to know people letting them see your life, how the gospel works in your life, um, that can be really powerful. And so um, often at, at our church, people will say, hey, pastor, how do I get plugged into the church? And there are many ways they can get plugged into the church. But one one thing I'll, I like to say to them is eat with people. Yes. Um, if you can just go eat with people twice a week, um, you might be surprised at what kind of fruit we can have when it comes to bringing people to faith. So we've emphasized that a lot, and it seems to be an attainable goal. It's a reachable thing, and it's something that you can do in the ordinary rhythm of your life where you're not adding another night to your schedule to go do evangelism. And so I think if we'll just build some gospel intentionality into our rhythms, uh, we could see some really cool things happen. With with the statistics that show young people de-churched, unchurched, not interested in spiritual things, a lot of people look at our current moment and say the trajectory is not a good trajectory for the United States. We're headed where the U.K. went. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if we're not post-Christian yet, we're going to get there. Mm-hmm kind of a discouraging time to be in pastoral ministry if you look at those numbers, right? You're in the, you're in the wrong business. Yeah. Well, I think uh, having a high view of God's sovereignty helps me sleep at night. <laughs> uh, Paul in, in 2 Timothy says the Lord knows who are his, and, and, and Christianity is not going to collapse like a, like a house of playing cards, I think uh, John Stott says in his commentary on that text, um, that the Lord has a people for himself, and he will continue to have a people for himself. And so I'm not worried about uh, everything collapsing. Um, I do think there are challenges, but those are also opportunities. I think as some of the veneer gets knocked off of what is considered Christianity and people can really see kind of the, 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 the real deal, like what this is, what they're actually rejecting, because oftentimes I think what unbelievers are rejecting is not real Christianity. It's some pseudo form of it. Yeah. Uh, and so um, one could look at the U.K. situation and say, boy, this is terrible. Others could look at it and say, this is a great opportunity. Uh, and the other thing is like you know Christians have always uh, uh, throughout the years been we've not been a majority culture we, we've often reached the fringes and um, uh, we've had the luxury in America of of having stuff and having experiences that the rest of the world haven't had um, but we've also seen the church grow really strong in those kinds of times and we've seen persecuted Christians just be heroic and um, so I think. Um, um, while it would be reasonable for one not to be excited about this trajectory, uh, I think you could really look at it also with some gospel optimism and uh, and not wave the white flag and give up, but, but say, man, we've got a, the ability right now to show the world what real biblical Christianity is. And I think when it's presented well, it's very compelling, mm-hmm. regardless of what label we give to our culture. 
your um, faithfulness, your integrity, your commitment, your your ongoing work is something all of us have profited from. We're grateful for, and uh, I'm grateful for the conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great joy. Yeah.